You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Our reading today comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome. Go ahead, take your seats. Um, Thank you, band. Thanks for reading, Jane. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Josh, the pastor here at Praxis. On behalf of your first-time guest or visitor, on behalf of the staff and leadership, a big warm welcome to you. Glad that you're here with us. If you don't know the story of Praxis, we, we, uh, my wife and I moved up from the coast along with some others, a team, some from Vancouver moved up um, to plant Praxis. I think it, our, we, maybe nine months ago, we began some pre-launch gatherings in the parking lot out here in a tent. Um, seven months ago, we officially launched this thing, and we've just been blown away by God's grace. We came up possessed by this vision of seeing every single person in the Okanagan within reach of a biblically faithful, gospel-proclaiming, vibrant church. Once again, that's not the case at the moment. There's many communities within this valley and kind of in the peripheral of this valley that don't have a church anymore, and we're burdened for that. So we planted Praxis with the goal of, by God's grace, being a church-planting church we come from churches that are, have a long legacy of being church-planting churches, and that's our goal, is to do that. Now, we've just been blown away by God's grace towards us in the seven short months that we've been uh, a church here in Kelowna. We have two gatherings now that have filled up. Very excited to announce this, is that I'm beginning after Easter, um, out of necessity, but also out of a, um, a desire to reach more, we are beginning a third gathering. So we're going to be having a 4 p.m. gathering every Sunday. This would be the first week after Easter that we begin this. Just so that, well, one, we need to make room for more people to be able to fit in here. Every week we have more people coming out, and um, we love that. We're encouraged people getting to come out, hear the word of God. This is a mission opportunity practice. This is an opportunity to reach more in this city. Um, God seems to be doing a thing, and we just want to make some seats here. Um, this is... Um, a a great blessing to be able to partner in this. So I want to ask some of you, specifically, maybe those who like to wake up at the crack of noon, to consider the 4 p.m. gathering as your home gathering, making that 4 p.m. post-Easter the gathering that you come to. Some of you, you'll prefer the morning. Um, We still, we need to, we need some to consider this, and this is a missional opportunity. I want you to consider this, not just not just because you like to wake up later, but also as a place where you can serve and use your gifts. I'm, I'm convinced God's going to continue to grow and give us opportunity to reach new people with the gospel. So giving you a heads up on that, we'll have more of that coming, but maybe just to start some discussions in your homes in the coming weeks in the lead up to Easter, would you consider 4 p.m. making that your home gathering? There won't be childcare in the 4 p.m., so the 9 and the 11 will continue to be home for families, those who want to, um, their kids to engage in kids' church. But maybe for those who have some freedom around that, empty nesters, um, college students, consider the 4 p.m. You could still 
do sports in the morning with your kids. You could still hit the ski hill. I know that's, uh, that's a big thing for many of you. But um, 4 p.m. is coming, and so just a heads up on that. If you haven't already, we're a, a church where you need your Bible open. So go ahead, open that up. We're going to be in Matthew 6. If you don't have one, we have one in the back. You can turn your Bible on. You can literally just Google Matthew 6, and, and the verse will come up as well where we're going to be. But go ahead and do that. I want to open this in a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in. Oh, Father, I thank you for a chance to come together and, and reflect on your faithfulness towards us. How great, how deep, how long, how vast is your love towards us. You're a good and a gracious God. You've been kind to us. We, um, I just, I'm excited by um, seeing what you're doing here in this city, in this congregation. I'm excited for what's to come. We continue to pray outward for these communities that no longer have gospel proclamation. Pray that you'd lay that more deeply upon our hearts. Pray that you'd continue to call planters, to call people who would spend their lives for your glory. This morning as we open your word, um, as your people, we long to be fed. We acknowledge we are not just physical beings, we're spiritual beings, and just as our physical man will die if it's not fed, our spiritual man will wither if it's not fed. And so we need you, Holy Spirit, to come unpack the words that you've preserved, that you spoke through holy man as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You've preserved for thousands of years. Now that word that you may come alive. Use me, a very frail and broken servant, do the work I cannot do. We commend this time to you, and we pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. All right. Um, if you've been with us, we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount. We've been, I mean, not just in the Sermon on the Mount, our James series before, our Philippian series last summer. We've talked about this a lot. Our faith should, should express itself outwardly through actions. Faith is not just something that kind of takes place here or in our minds. It's something that needs to flow out. In our James series, James said, faith without works is dead. It's no faith at all. A real faith that is alive will express itself in an outward form through, through different actions, things that we do. Um, but we need to be on guard while we do some of these things. Um, Jesus has been talking about that in Matthew 6 here for a few weeks now, because as we engage in these disciplines of devotion, these, these actions of faith, it's easy to kind of get sidetracked. Happens all the time. You can be worshiping here, praising Jesus with your hands up, and suddenly you're thinking, I wonder if the person next to me hears my killer arpeggios. You can, you can be reading your Bible in, in Sprout or Bright Jenny and more concerned about whether that photo you Instagrammed of your, your latte and your Bible is getting likes than hearing from word, the word of the Lord. You can be serving here in Sunday morning and wondering, hey, is everyone noticing how good I am at doing this service role? You can be doing these actions and completely miss the point. These outward actions of our faith, they're meant to, um, to be for God. They're meant to be about God. And we need to be on guard against missing the point. Uh, this is what Jesus has been addressing. He's used a few different examples. We're moving into the third this morning. If you were with us two weeks ago, Colin unpacked the first, talking about giving, giving to the poor, and he warned us, there's a way that you can give to the poor that's all about being seen by others, getting your name on a plaque, that hospital wing named after you, getting the, the philanthropist of the year award, 
This is not what giving's about. Giving is meant to be something that we do out of gratitude for the way God has given to us. Graciously, sacrificially. And so we give joyfully and sacrificially because God has given joyfully and sacrificially towards us. But we can miss the point. You can miss the point. There's a danger in it, but he doesn't mean we're not to do it. The second example that we talked about last week was prayer. And Jesus gave a warning. Don't pray like the hypocrites. He gave us a, a couple big warnings. If you missed that, you can go back. It's online. There's, there's things we need to be on guard against as we pray. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't pray. We still should. As we pick it up this morning, Jesus' final description, kind of address of a, a, a discipline of devotion that we might engage in and some of the warnings around it, um, as we take a look at it, we're going to see there, there is things to be on guard against. He's going to begin. He's going to begin by giving a warning, but he's, he's also going to address this discipline as if we are doing it. The discipline we're talking about this morning is fasting. So, as with the other two, there's a warning, but it, it's still a practice that Jesus assumes we're going to engage in. If you take a look on verse 16, he says this, when you fast. It's not if you fast or don't fast because. He says when you fast. He assumes we're going to do it. But here's the thing. Most of us probably don't engage with this practice. And if we do, it's probably more to do with its physical benefits than its spiritual benefits. Most of us wouldn't think of fasting as a religious practice that is central to our belief. You know, we, we might have some understanding of it within the cultural context of how fasting gets used, but th there is an aspect of it that pertains to our faith. And so in order to properly understand this this morning, we're going to take a look at three things. Um, first, we're going to take a look at this risk of fasting that Jesus addresses. Then we're going to look at the reason of fasting, and lastly, the reward. If you didn't get a book, or if you did, if you came in with your book, we're on page 101. There's a spot for your notes there. Note takers, this is the format we're going to take a look at. The risk, the reward, or the reason, and the reward of fasting. Um, take a look with me. Verse 16, I'll begin reading. Jesus says, and when you fast, again, assuming we are fasting, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites dealt with them the last few weeks. These are the Pharisees, and he uses this word hypocrites, which refers to an acting troupe who put on masks with very drastic expressions on them so that they could be seen from the nosebleed seats in the amphitheaters where these plays were enacted. Don't do this, he's saying, like the hypocrites who do this to be seen, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. They were fasting. He assumes they're going to fast, and I think he's, he's making a case that we should. So in order to understand this context a little, we need to know what fasting looked like in this Jewish first century context. The Jewish people at this time, they weren't fasting for its health benefits. They weren't doing intermittent fasting so that they could fit into their high school jeans or get their beach bod ready. 
their fasting was done differently than most fasting is done today. Um, and in order to explain this, I need to get nerdy with you for a minute, all right? Um, there's essentially two types, two ways they were fasting. The first of which um, fasting would take place in this time was public fasting. So the Old Testament law, one day a year, required that everyone who was a Jew fast. This was on the Day of Atonement. Everyone would get together and they would fast as an expression of humility. They'd put on sackcloth, they would mourn, and they would pray. And they would nationally fast. Over time, um, this one day a year fast, it began to become associated with other holidays. Um, and other times, um, national times of repentance. So when the whole nation would get together, when they'd committed grievous sin, they would fast. We even see this, remember the prophet Jonah going to Nineveh, and he confronts them in their sin. The whole nation gets together and fasts. Uh, really, fasting like this, it was a way of expressing inner contrition. It was a way of outwardly demonstrating that you were repentant. But there's a second way fasting was done. It's private fasting. Voluntary fasts that uh, individuals would take on on their own. Um, the Old Testament, David fasted many times. He fasted after he'd sinned. Others performed personal fasts as well as an outward act of contrition, showing that they were penitent and repentant. But then Moses fasted 40 days. He fasted on behalf of Israel's sin. Daniel fasted on behalf of Judah's sin. Darius fasted in concern for Daniel. Esther fasted in concern for her people. Fasting um, often as well in, associated with intercession, that prayer for other people. So two ways you would see fasting practiced. But over time, this is where it starts to really apply to our text here. Over time, fasting became a practice that certain religious groups would engage in twice a week. So the Pharisees here, they were fasting twice a week, Monday, Mondays and Thursdays, because Monday was when Moses went up the mountain, Thursday is when he came down. Completely extra-biblical. It's not a command, but this became something they were doing, Mondays and Thursdays. And, and they did this because they believed that by fasting on Mondays and Thursdays, they could atone for the sin of the nation. They could avoid tragedy coming upon the nation. So, these Pharisees here, who Jesus is referring to as hypocrites, they're performing this practice twice a week, but they're completely missing the point. They felt holy. They wanted everyone to know, hey, we're doing this like extra... Um, this extra thing, extracurricular religious activity. Aren't I holy? Look at this thing I'm doing for you. This is what Jesus is warning against. They're missing the point. They're outwardly doing something, but inwardly completely missing the point. Earlier in the Bible, um, actually, Isaiah 58, if you want to flip there with me, God, God rebukes Israel for doing something very similar. They're performing this once-a-year fast. Actually, they're performing fasts at all of their religious ceremonies. And God comes along in Isaiah 58, verse 5, and he rebukes them for it. He says, is this the fast I chose? For you to do this outward thing, bow your head down like a reed, spread sackcloth, put ashes on. Is that a fast? And he actually, he comes back and he says, isn't this what I've chosen? Isn't this really what I'm after? 
that you would loose the bonds of wickedness. Undo the straps of the yoke. Let the oppressed go free. Break every yoke. Isn't it to share your bread with the hungry? Bring the homeless poor into your house. Clothe the naked. Not hide yourself from your own flesh. If you did this, God says, then the thing you're after, that hearing from me, he says, then you should call and the Lord would answer. Then you would cry and, and, and he would say, here I am. If you pour yourself out for the hungry, basically if you keep my commands, I hear you. They're missing the point. They're doing all these things outwardly, these extracurricular religious activities, and missing the point that God was initially after, which is obedience to his commands. Jesus isn't after an outer show. He wants inner obedience. Fasting isn't something we do for the praise of men but the praise of the Father. Jesus doesn't want outward exuberance. He wants inner sincerity. Jesus isn't after inner show. <clears throat> he wants inner transformation. There's a way that we can fast that completely misses the point. It's just outer religious show. This is what he's rebuking. But there's still something here. I want to, as we move on here, I want to show us, rightly understood, fasting is a way of actively engaging in that inner transformation that Jesus is after. Rightly understood, fasting is a way of engaging in that inner transformation that Jesus desires takes place in us. Take a look, verse 17 with me, if you flip back over to Matthew. He says this, when you fast, Again, assuming we will, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your Father who's in secret. It's going to move us on to our second point here. We talked about the risk. I want to talk about the reason for fasting. Uh, we know Jesus wasn't condemning outright the practice of fasting because the early church and the disciples continued to practice this. It actually seems the early Christians dialed up the practice of fasting. They increased their engagement. Thank you, bro. Do I sound that bad? <laughs> um, Paul fasted after his Damascus Road encounter. The church in Antioch fasted before they sent Paul and Barnabas out on their first missionary journey. Then Paul and Barnabas, they fast before they appoint elders in the churches that they're planting on their missionary journey. The early church, actually, if you read um, the history of the early church, they fasted every Wednesday and Friday. Every Wednesday and Friday. Actually, this weekend I read in um, a church document. It's called the, the Didache. It was a, essentially, it was like a discipleship manual that they would give to people who just came to faith, describing how to live the Christian life. It's not the Bible. It's an extracurricular kind of book that was designed to help people. But in there... Before they baptized people, they assumed people would be practicing fasting every Wednesday and Friday. Wednesday, because that's the day Jesus was betrayed. Friday, because that was the day he was crucified. So, all that to say, fasting was continuing on. Every Easter, they would fast from sunrise to sundown for 40 days, for all the 40 days of Lent. And that actually continues on today in the Eastern Orthodox Church as well, uh, if you find that interesting. I do. Uh, they apparently saw a great purpose in fasting. 
It was central to the faith. Fasting was a central activity. And if we're going to understand what the purpose and reason of what fasting is, I think we first need to understand what it isn't. Why they continued. Um, in order to understand that, we need to know a few things. Because we're all walking in here with some, some concept of fasting. We all have some conception, even if it's just a little. Kelowna, the city that we live ourselves, or we find ourselves in, pardon me, is very health-obsessed. Very health-obsessed city. It's like every corner, there is a gym, or a juice bar, or a nutrition store, or hot yoga, or cold yoga, or medium temperature yoga. There's salt healing caves. I don't know what that is, but there is Pilates, there's Zumba. This crowd knows about fasting. They know a thing or two about it. There is juice fast, there's water fasts, there's fruit fasts, there are wheat fasts, there's intermittent fasts. If you like to hang out at the Christian bookstore, we've even copied this, there's a Daniel fast. Religious or not, we're coming in with some preconceived notion of what fasting is, so it's important that we talk about what it isn't. I'm going to give you three things fasting isn't. First, it's not about our physical health. Rightly understood, it's not a way to extend your life, trim your BMI, or cleanse your colon. I said that. Um, is there health benefits? Sure. It appears there is. Science seems to point this out, but this is not what it's about. Secondly, it's not a way to make God accept us. Many in the first century culture, they were engaging in this, thinking it atoned for their sins. This is not what's, what's happening. This is not a way to make ourselves acceptable to Jesus. Lastly, it's not a way to force God's hand to action. And this is probably how I best understood fasting growing up in the church or around the church. You know, I'd be like, you know, I'll fast so that God would give me something, like I'm getting him in an arm bar or like some sort of like hunger fast where eventually he's like, okay, okay, I'll give you that. Just eat already. It's not what it is. Rightly understood, fasting is not a way of changing God's receptivity to us, but our receptivity to God. I'm going to say that again because that's important. Fasting is not a way of, making, of changing God's receptivity to us, but our receptivity to God. This is not what fasting is. Now I want to talk about what it is. First thing... It's a way of properly posturing our hearts. It's a humble position that we take before God. It's a physical declaration, an outward display of our need for something from God. It communicates a soul, like deep level hunger. And this will make more sense in a little bit. Secondly, it's a way of properly positioning our hearts. You can only fill a cup when you put it under the tap. It's a way of properly positioning our hearts. Actually, a quote I have from a guy, David Mathis. He wrote a book, Habits of Grace, and in that he talks about fasting at greater length. If you want to go um, nerd out some more, commend this book. But he said, we can't earn God's grace or make it flow apart from his free gift, but we can position ourselves to go on getting as he keeps on giving. Fasting's a way of properly positioning our heart. We see fasting practiced like this over and over and over in the New Testament. 
People fasted as a way of posturing their heart in a way that it could receive. When they needed wisdom, when they needed to discern who to appoint for elders or where to go on missionary journeys, where the Spirit was leading them, how they should make decisions, they, they pressed into times of prayer and fasting. But there's a third way that fasting's used, and this, this is good, and this is where we're going to spend the remainder of our time. Um, it's this, fasting is a way of purposefully putting to death our flesh. Fasting is a way of purposefully putting to death our flesh. You and I are not just physical beings. The Bible says that we're also spiritual beings. God made us out of dust, but then he breathed his spirit into us, and we are both physical and spiritual. And the whole of the Christian life is, is, is about having what has taken place for us spiritually unpack and inform and transform our physical beings as well, of bringing them together, there being a cohesion Chapter 5, a little while ago, you remember Jesus left off by saying that we must be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And we talked about that word perfect means in, in Greek, um, it's teleos. It means to have our faith fully inform our life. It's to, for our faith to become fully embodied in our life. Our, this is the chief struggle of the Christian life. If you've been a Christian or tried to be one for any length of time here, uh, it's difficult to have our spiritual life inform and fully unpack in our, our flesh. So we have been justified. I've got a definition up on the screen for you. It's that act of being declared righteous before God. We have been declared righteous and holy because of the work of Christ. If you've accepted Jesus as your Lord, He's paid for your sins. You are objectively righteous before God. But now the ongoing work is having that unpack and transform our life. And that's what is referred to in theological speak as sanctification, the process of being made holy, having the spiritual righteousness we've been gifted in Christ affect and transform every aspect of our lives. It's having our upstairs beliefs unpack fully in the downstairs living room of our lives. And this is what I want to show us, is that fasting is actually a powerful tool in that process of helping what's taken place upstairs unpack downstairs. When we fast, we are in essence saying, I am not just physical, I'm also spiritual. I don't just have physical appetites, I have spiritual appetites. It's not just my body that has needs, it's my spirit. And fasting is a way of pulling our ourselves up from the crumbs on the floor and putting it before a feast at the table. It's setting it down at a spiritual feast by resisting a physical one, starving the flesh in order to feed the spirit, intentionally pulling back from the indulgences, really the things that our body needs in order to purposefully put it before the things that will nourish and take care of what our spirit needs. Fasting is a way of strengthening and nourishing our spirit through not feeding our flesh. Now, in order to unpack that more, I want to just ask you, flip to the left in your Bible over to Matthew 4. Matthew 4, uh, really good pictures of this. 
Matthew 4, I'm going to read it, just verses 1 to 4, and then we'll kind of we'll unpack it bit by bit. It says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. Make note of that. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Okay, <laughs> we'll come back to that. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, first thing to make note of here, it says Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted. It's noteworthy. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Lots here. One, the desert that you are in. That place of temptation you're experiencing, that dry valley you feel like you're in spiritually, perhaps the Spirit has led you there too. Perhaps the Spirit's not absent. Perhaps he's very much present. Second thing to note, make note of in this text, though, in the lead-up to this time in the wilderness and the temptation that is about to come his way, Jesus fasts. Now, in becoming human, Jesus, who is God, the second person of the Trinity, he came down and he put on flesh. He put on humanity, but he did not put off divinity. He'd never ceased being God, and he made in contact with his attributes all the way through this. Philippians says he just veiled. He veiled his divinity behind humanity. But he was very much God. And I say that for this reason. Jesus is all-knowing. He knew what was coming in the wilderness. He knew temptation was coming. And what did he do? In preparation, he fasted. He fasted. So Jesus knows temptation's coming. He knows the Spirit's leading him into the wilderness. So he fasts. One day, there's so much here. One day I want to do a series on the spiritual disciplines, and I want to come back and really unpack Matthew 4, because there's three temptations that Satan comes at Jesus with, but I want to just take a look at one, just one because of the sake of time here. First thing Satan comes and tempts Jesus with is this. Take a look. In verse 2, it's the desire for self-gratification. Matthew 4, verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. Yeah. Yeah, of course he was. So Satan comes to him and says, if you're the son of God, if you're really God, all-powerful, you can do everything, turn that rock right there into bread. You can do it. Take care of your hunger. Why are you hungry? You can take care of this yourself. Self-gratification. Jesus is fasting. It's kind of remarkable here. Seems to be, seems to be the, the cause of his temptation. Satan comes, he tries to tempt Jesus towards satisfying his own cravings. Cravings he would not have if he were not fasting. Free yourself. Take that stone. You can do this. What are you waiting for? Satisfy yourself. Those are the same messages we hear. As a culture, we have bought into this temptation hook, line, and sinker. 
gratify yourself. Have what you want. Why do, you can do that yourself. Why wait for God to answer? You can take, just reach out and grab it. Satan does this to us as well. If you feel it, this is the message. If you feel it, if you want it, then it must be right and you shouldn't deprive yourself of anything that you want or feel because that would be inauthentic. That's the message that we're told. But Matthew 4 shows us something important. Self-gratification is a tool of the enemy. Self-gratification is a ploy. It's a strategy of the enemy. The enemy wants us to live principally as physical beings. He wants us to believe that you are principally just a fleshly being. And he wants you to, to buy into the lie that everything your flesh wants, it needs. Because if he can do this, he can get you to lose sight of the fact that you are not principally flesh. You are also spirit. And that just as our physical beings will die if they're deprived of bread for a long period of time, so too will your spiritual being die if it's not fed. This is why all throughout the Bible, I've got a verse up here from Romans, um, we're told this, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The message of the Bible is at odds with the message of our culture, which is have it all, treat yourself. Make no provision for the flesh. Romans 8 says, So then, brothers, we're debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Galatians says this, Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. At some point or another, Satan is going to come at you with this same tactic to try to lure you away from walking by the Spirit, enjoying the presence of God, and to instead just believe the lie that you are principally a physical being and that every physical appetite you have should be heeded. Notice this. Fasting is how Jesus prepared for this. It was the cause of temptation, but it was also the cure for it. He fasted 40 days because rightly understood physical fasting is spiritual feasting. The way he was able to resist the physical cries was by being spiritually satisfied. He could resist the temptation of Satan because he was full. Physical fasting is spiritual feasting. We are meant to be spiritually full. And when we are, the demands upon our physical flesh are easier to, de to deny. When we're spiritually fed, it's easier to resist the things that Satan tempts us to satisfy ourselves with because our appetites are... because our, our stomach is full, our spiritual stomach is full. Actually, the more we do this, too, the more attuned we become to healthy eating, so to speak. The more we are spiritually fed, the less we, we give in to these carnal demands that don't really feed us. They're kind of like junk food. Uh, I remember maybe like four years ago, uh, we were actually up in the Okanagan for a vacation. Somebody had given our family a gift card to White Spot. 
And um, I think I preached somewhere, so we got this gift card. We're up on vacation. I said, oh, we'll go to White Spot. We go in, and we ordered some burgers, and we sat down. And I remember my oldest daughter, Temperance, who was like five at the time, she had a bite of the burger. And then she put it down, and she was like, Dad, this food tastes like garbage. And it's funny. If you like White Spot, I'm sorry. Um, but my kids were so used to eating good, healthy food at home that she was like, I'd rather not eat. I'll just wait till the next meal. She'd become so used to eating good food that like Cisco frozen burgers turned her stomach. This is what fasting's like. When we feast on good spiritual food, we're less prone to fall victim to the garbage. The point of the story is white spots a lot like Satan. Um, the, th the things that Satan is selling as bread, notice this, notice this, the things Satan is selling as bread are rocks. They're rocks. They can't satisfy our hunger, but he disguises them as such. He lies to us and tell them, tells us they will. Many of us, we're indulging in everything we want, whatever we want, whenever we want it. We've bought wholesale into this lie and this temptation of enemy, and we're living, um, temptation of the enemy, and we're living our lives enslaved to our appetites. We've dedicated our lives to filling our bellies, and the things we're trying to satisfy our appetites with aren't working, and it's because they're rocks. They can't. The whole lie of this materialist Darwinian worldview that's being rammed down our throats in this culture is that you are just space dust. Your time and chance happening upon matter and you're nothing more than a physical being and that's horse crap. You are more than a physical being. You are a spiritual being. Your physical dust that God breathed his life into and the same way that your physical being will die if it's not fed, your spiritual die being will wither if it is not fed as well. And this is why Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. You cannot live by bread alone. But most of us, we're so hooked on the lies of marketing that have told us the counter... Our spiritual beings are withered and we fall victim to every temptation that Satan throws at us. Praxis, what are the rocks that Satan is selling to you as food? What are the rocks that he's selling to you as food? He is. Might be clothing, workout gear, golf gear, Dream vacation spot. Maybe it's an ideal body and all the things you need to do in order to get it. Maybe it's home furnishings. Heck, we're the third most expensive city to live in in Canada. It might just be a home. The rock that he's selling to you might just be the lure of home ownership. It could be a Tesla, a new Apple product. Maybe it's alcohol or drugs or the next buzz or a sexual encounter or better sex or different sex or a different spouse. He's selling you a rock that, and telling you that it's food and it's not. What is the thing Satan is telling you that once you have, you will feel full? What is he telling you will satisfy your appetite?
the Spirit will often drive us into the wilderness. He sends us there to bring us to a place where, so that we can identify that thing that Satan is trying to use to appeal purely to our physical appetites. He's brought us there so that we can identify it. And we need to see fasting is the intentional placement of our heart before the thing that can and will satisfy. It's lifting it up from the materialistic crumbs on the floor and setting it before the spiritual feast at the table that Jesus has set for us. It's redirecting our heart towards the thing that can satisfy. It's repositioning our hearts under streams that will refresh. It's lifting our hearts up from the crumbs on the floor to the feast at the table. For some of us, the way through the desert that we're in and the way to, to fight the temptation that you are tormented by is going to come through this practice of fasting. It's a way of saying, I am not just a physical being, I'm a spiritual one as well. We've talked about uh, the risk of fasting. I've tried to give you a reason for fasting. Now I want to talk about the reward of it. The reward of fasting. That thing that um, fasting practically accomplishes. One is that, I've already said it, it helps put to death our flesh. Fasting is, could very likely be the way through the desert that you find yourself in. That's re a reward coming through that. For many of you, you've been craving that. That's the reward. Fasting is, is a way of feeding our spirit man. It's a way of growing up in our faith. It's a way of combating the cravings of our flesh and saying we're not just physical, we're spiritual. It's a way of training ourselves and nourishing ourselves spiritually. That is the reward. Matthew 16, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his physical life will lose it. But whoever loses his physical life for my sake will find his spiritual life. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What would it gain a man? This is what he's saying. What would it gain a man if he was materially obese and spiritually anorexic? Fasting is a way of growing and nourishing our spirit. It's, lastly, it's, it's a way of fighting the lies of Satan. If we are disciples of Jesus, our job is to become like our rabbi. Our job is to become more like our, our master. It's to be conformed to his image. It's to become like Jesus. And if we want to become like Jesus, we need to do the things that Jesus did. And Jesus regularly fasted. His disciples fasted. The early church fasted. He assumes here in Matthew 5, um, 6, pardon me, that his disciples would fast. It's an ancient practice. It's one that centuries of Christians have practiced before us, but it's one that I think has fallen out of rhythm for disciples of Jesus today. And, and I want to make a case that this is something that should 
and does belong in the life of a disciple because we are not just physical beings. We are spiritual beings as well. We always close with two questions and kind of two things I want to leave with you this week is what stones does Satan sell you as bread? Encourage you. This is taking place. Are you aware of it? Secondly is what sins are you prone to indulging in, just giving into? Which temptation has mastered you? I want us to see that fasting can be a way through both of those things. It can be a way of, of training your appetite to not fall for the junk food. And it can be a way of shutting up the voice of Satan. Matthew 4, if you read on, it was actually through fasting Jesus was able to um, combat the three temptations that Satan came at him with. And in verse 11 of Matthew 4, 11, it actually says, then Satan left him. The way through, the way to oppose this, this spiritual attack that we're all experiencing, Matthew 4 seems to be saying, comes by way of fasting. One author put it this way. He said, fasting is a way to put ourselves in a situation of moderate deprivation and discomfort in order to practice for a period of time being sustained direct, directly and joyfully by God's words alone. Praxis, can I commend to you the practice of fasting? And as you do this, I, I want to ask, would you consider doing it this week? Some of you will have health conditions or um, you're breastfeeding, things like this. Probably talk to a doctor before you engage in it. For the vast majority of us, you can fast one day easily. I want to say this too, is often when we talk about fasting, we're like, I'm fasting Netflix. Don't fast Netflix. You can live without Netflix for a week. I know you can. Fast food. Not, not white spot fast food. Give up food. Give up the primary thing that nourishes your flesh as a way of acknowledging that you are not just flesh. And as you feel the pangs of hunger, which really aren't that bad in a one-day fast, but as you feel that desire to want to eat, pray. Ask God to nourish your spirit man. And he does. He hears. This isn't a way of making yourself right before God. This is a way of engaging spiritually with the God of the universe. Um, maybe, maybe as community groups this week, this is something you want to do together and then come together with your community group, have like a app, like appy potluck or something. When you break fast, it's great to celebrate. Celebrate and remember, hey, Jesus has paid for all of my sins. There is a spiritual feast at the table, but you are physical. You do need physical food. But many of us, we've neglected that spiritual manna. So I, just, I want to commend this as a practice. Jesus gave warning to this. Don't do this in, in a way to think that you're making yourself right before God, but he does not condemn the practice. He actually assumes that we'll continue on in it. So practice, consider this. Consider it. Consider how this might actually be a way of further engaging in your spiritual formation. I want to close this in prayer.
Well, um, Jesus, I thank you. Thank you for, for coming, for paying for our sins. Thank you that it's not our actions that make us right before you. That you have objectively made us righteous before the Father. But we long as your people to practically to become righteous, to have that upstairs reality unpacked in the downstairs living room of our lives. Would you continue the work of conforming us to you? Would you awaken spiritual appetites in us? Would you help us to be a people who, who crave for more? And then would you help us to be people who position our hearts, posture our hearts in such a way that we can receive more from you? Because you said um, that there is streams of living water available to us. We long for that. We crave that. And I believe your word is true. I believe it's there. As we engage this week, would you protect us from the lies of the enemy? As you taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation. But if it comes, would we not fall victim to these lies, these rocks that Satan sells us as food? Would you help us to be people whose appetites are tuned to the great spiritual feast that you've set before us at the table? And it's in your great name we pray. Amen.